Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we'll hear about the barriers many Black Coloradans face in getting mental health care. Plus, we'll learn about the benefits of using native plants in landscaping and gardens. Native plants are important because they've co-evolved with the other organisms that are present, such as mycorrhizae fungi, all the way up the food chain. We'll also get an update on the Northern Colorado housing market. That and more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Over the past year, Black Americans have been processing the devastation of the coronavirus pandemic, multiple incidents of high-profile police violence, and on Tuesday, a guilty verdict against former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. It's a single, small step toward equality under the law. That was Colorado State Senator James Coleman reacting to the verdict. But despite that small step he mentioned, it's clear that the cumulative mental health strain over the last year has been significant. KUNC's mental health reporter Lee Patterson joins us now to talk about the ongoing drivers and the need for mental health care for Black Coloradans. Lee, thank you for joining us. Hi, Erin. There was a survey done by the Colorado Health Foundation that came out last year. And from this, we know that Black Coloradans reported being more concerned about the coronavirus than whites, that they experienced greater financial insecurity and are more likely to fear the police. Since then, police shootings have continued. Then the guilty verdict on Tuesday. You talked with a young man named Dane Washington who lives with his parents in Denver. What was his reaction? He felt kind of mixed about the verdict. I for sure am happy about the verdict, but at the same time, it's like very bittersweet because it's just it's just one small step. And I think it, it just goes to show how how prolonged of a wait it was and how much how deserving we were of that verdict by how like the reaction to it. It just shows that it was just a dire wait for justice. The issue of violence and mental health, particularly for black kids, goes really well beyond the murder of George Floyd. Dane works in an elementary school, and he also works with the city on youth violence prevention. And from his perspective, young people can be dealing with a lot of different things, sometimes all at once. Maybe a difficult home life, a lack of resources in general, being truly scared of the police, plus everyday gun violence that happens in some communities. Dane told me that when he was a kid, for example, he'd hear gunshots all the time during his football practice. It's not taken serious enough that these kids and just Black people in general have to just continuously act like this stuff isn't happening in our streets every day. It's hard to just continue to act like these things don't exist. Each year, hundreds of young people in Denver are involved in gun crimes, either as suspects or as victims. We know that in 2020, gun violence overall surged in the city. During summer protests, police repeatedly used significant force against demonstrators like rubber bullets and tear gas. And then in Aurora, after a young black man named Elijah McLean died after an encounter with police, several investigations into what happened are ongoing. What Dane is saying is that living with this type of ongoing trauma and stress without having any outlet or way to process it is just really, really challenging. 
And what does it look like to live with those mental health impacts? I talked with Dr. April Alexander about that. She is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Denver, and she's also the first chair of the Racial Justice Task Force for the Colorado Psychological Association. Here, she is talking about not only violence, but also the mental health impacts of discrimination. And so when we're talking about trauma, we have to first label racial trauma as a type of trauma and recognize that all types of trauma do affect the brain as you were describing, making you more hypervigilant, making more fearful, uh, making you uh, more uh, resistant to wanting to interact with uh, people of authority. All of these symptoms that we see with other forms of trauma, we see with racial trauma. So anxiety, depression, PTSD, nightmares, trouble sleeping, trouble concentrating, et cetera, et cetera. So the need is clearly there. Let's talk about access. There are barriers that Dr. Alexander called psychosocial. So stigmas, particularly for young black men, you know, they're supposed to be tough and hypermasculine, that trauma shouldn't affect them. And then there are historical stigmas that, you know, people struggling with mental illness are just crazy people. And then, yes, issues of physical access. Is care affordable? Is it well-located? And is it simply available? Here's Dane Washington again. I think the biggest thing is like having people within our community who like want to work with us, but who also look like us and who we can relate to people who are from the community. I think that's like really the biggest thing. It starts with getting more people who look like us in in positions of authority. This is partially a supply and a pipeline problem. There are not enough black therapists. Now, Colorado doesn't track the race of the therapists and psychiatrists that it licenses, but nationally, according to the most recent numbers, and these are from 2016 by the American Psychological Association, only 4% of licensed psychologists were Black, though numbers have been increasing in recent years. We also know that the need is increasing. The APA, the American Psychological Association, projects that demand for psychologists among Black Americans will increase much more than for the general population by the year 2030. We've heard about an increased focus on mental health during the pandemic. Do we know if that's resulted in any sort of meaningful change? Somewhat, particularly in the increase of telehealth. So meeting with a therapist over video or phone, that's allowed mental health services to reach a greater variety of people generally. Uh, During the pandemic, Dr. April Alexander, for example, has been compiling a list of providers of color. But she also said that she herself and her work and in her life, she's observed a shift that began before the pandemic. Uh, Young people, for example, seeking care, particularly in school and also becoming more comfortable simply talking about it. Dane Washington sees mental health care as very wide ranging. In his work on youth violence prevention, he's helping to open a city-sponsored youth empowerment center in southwest Denver. If the plan is approved by city council, the center would offer both uh, behavioral and mental health services, along with some other types of programming. I think one of the biggest things that you can implement into a kid's life that can help with mental health is encouraging them to get in some type of extracurricular like sports or or art or something like that, and um, encouraging centers for for um, sports, so like recreation. The Park Hill Pirates, which is a local football team, also runs a literacy program, for example. Dane thinks it's really important for Black youth to have many different types of safe spaces to process traumatic events. 
He thinks that the verdict in George Floyd's murder will probably come up this week in the school where he works. I think for the most part, when the kids react to it, they'll be really happy about it. But also being very honest and upfront and letting, letting them know that this is a very small step. And that's one thing about working with kids is that throughout like all of the negative things or the sad feelings and stuff like that, like sometimes you have moments where kids just say enlightening things, you know, like how much they wish the world was better and things that they would want to see in the world. It just really makes you think of better days and things like that. Well, it's so great to hear how young people like Dane are working toward making those better days a reality. We'll continue to cover this issue in the months ahead. Thank you so much for your reporting and and for sharing this, Lee. You're welcome. Communities in Boulder and northern Colorado set new records for median home prices last month. After a short downturn at the start of the pandemic a year ago, the housing market now shows no signs of slowing down, and the shortage of available single-family homes could continue into the foreseeable future. Here with more on this is Lucas High, a reporter for Biz West. Lucas, thanks for joining us. Henry, thanks for having me. We are seeing some big increases. Where are the biggest? The biggest headline, I would say, is in Boulder. Uh, I mean, it's, it's sort of astounding what's happening in Boulder. Last month, we saw median home prices uh, top of one and a half million dollars for, uh, uh, for, the, for the homes sold last month, which, uh, which is a record there and just really quite astounding. I mean, we, we've seen Boulder prices top one million before, but uh, never before have we seen one and a half. And, you know, it's not just in Boulder. Uh, you know, Estes Park uh, saw records. There were over 600000 for a median sales price there. Uh, Fort Collins as well, uh, almost 500000 I think they were at four ninety five. dollars Longmont was close to a record at uh, $493,000. we are seeing across the board extraordinarily high prices. What is driving these prices? Because I think it seems counterintuitive that during a pandemic that created turmoil across countless sectors of the economy, that home prices would be not just steady, but increasing. It's kind of one of those perfect storm situations, Henry, where it's it's really kind of a confluence of three different factors that, that have all kind of come together. Uh, the, the most striking one is low inventory. So we're just not seeing a lot of, of sellers putting their homes on the market. Across the entire front range, that all the communities that we look at, active listings were down almost 50% year over year. And, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons for that. Some of them are situations where we're seeing kind of a snowball effect. So, so we're seeing uh, prices increase, and that's creating a situation where potential sellers are opting to kind of renovate their homes or just kind of stay put rather than putting their, their homes on the market. And, and it's just creating a, a situation where these impacts are really just kind of building on each, on each other. In addition to to low inventory, we're seeing a situation where demand is really building. Millennials are finally kind of in an economic place. It took a little while longer than than other generations due to you know the the Great Recession and other factors. They're finally in a kind of an economic place where they're able to buy homes. So that's a really large demographic that is now kind of in the housing market. We're also seeing uh, you know a lot of folks uh, you know during the pandemic realize that uh, they're going to be working from home for a long time, if not permanently. So you know if they were in a smaller home or perhaps a condo, uh, they're looking for more space. We're in a, a time right now of, of historically low interest rates, uh, so that drives up demand. 
And then, you know, also related to the pandemic, we're seeing folks, um, you know, moving into uh, our area from from other more expensive parts of the country. You know, our, our area is seeing, you know, a huge increase in, in population. Uh, and, and this goes beyond the pandemic. I think we've you know, the Front Range has had, a, you know, a 10% population increase uh, since 2010. And in that period, uh, I think Weld County's eclipsed that by by a significant amount. I think Weld County's up, uh, you know, 35% in, in population over that period. There's sort of a third factor as well, and it's it's that there aren't a lot of new homes that are coming online. There are a lot of reasons for that, and developers, um, you know, will put a lot of it on cost increases. The, the cost of water is big, becoming more and more of a factor. So uh, developers are hesitant to bring new homes online if they're not able to secure water rates uh, for those new homes. Land is becoming more and more expensive. I mean, every, for every lot, uh, you know, builders put a new home up on. That's one less lot that exists out there. You, you can't you can't build any more land. And then lumber is another thing. Uh, you know, lumber is is a really important cost factor for developers, and, and it's one that that's continuing to go up. So when you look at these three things: low inventory, higher costs, and higher demand, it's like I said, it's created this uh, this perfect storm for uh, for extremely high prices. For anyone listening who might be looking to sell their home or maybe as a would-be buyer, what does all this mean for them? Well, it means sort of the, the idea of of an asking price is kind of a, a is kind of passe, I guess, at, at this point. Uh, you know, it used to be an asking price was sort of you know where, where you would get to ultimately as far as a negotiation for a house. Um, now, you know, buyers and sellers kind of view uh, an asking price kind of as, as a starting point. Uh, you know, it's, it's a jumping off point for, you know, essentially a bidding war. You know, so if, if you're a buyer, um, you know, you can expect that, uh, you know, a, a, an asking price isn't necessarily where you're going to end up. You're likely going to end up, you know, 10 percent or 20 percent or even even higher, uh, you know, beyond that. And you know, for sellers, uh, you know, obviously, you can you can expect uh, to be able to to meet your asking price. That that is highly likely that you'll be able to get that. And you'll also probably be able to get uh, you know other concessions from from buyers as well. Uh, you know, we're talking about uh, you know the waiving of contingencies uh, around appraisals and inspections. Um, you know, you might even get a, a sight unseen buyer, and you're oftentimes uh, you know get to get a cash offer, and and those cash offers are like like I mentioned, going oftentimes going to be well above uh, the seller's asking price. Lucas High is a reporter for Biz West. If you want to check out his reporting on this, you'll find a link at our website kunc.org. Lucas, thank you for breaking all this down for us. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Back in March, a Senate resolution designated April as National Native Plant Month. The resolution was sponsored by Democratic Representative Maisie Hirano of Hawaii and Republican Rob Portman of Ohio. It aims to recognize the benefits that native plants have on the environment and the economy of the United States. But what exactly are those benefits? For more on that, we are joined by Denise Wilson. She's the Marketing and Events Coordinator for the Colorado Native Plant Society, which advocates for the preservation of native plants in our ecosystems. Denise, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you, Erin. I know there's a month now for everything. Why dedicate a whole month to native plants? And what is the definition of native plants? Well, a plant's native if it has occurred naturally in a particular region or ecosystem without human intervention. Native plants are important because they've co-evolved with the other organisms that are present, such as mycorrhizal fungi, microbes in the soil, insects, pollinators, amphibians, reptiles, rodents, mammals, 
all the way up the food chain. Let's talk about some of the the dangers of non-native plants. And are there currently any problems with invasive plants in northern Colorado? So the danger in non-native plants lies in the disruption of that natural food web, less food for pollinators, birds, animals, disrupting the insect life as well. They crowd out the native plants. They use the resources, the water, the space. Sometimes they actually produce secondary compounds that literally are toxic to native plants. There's toxicity to wildlife and humans, allergic pollen proliferation, damage to agricultural crops. So absolutely, Colorado has a problem with invasive plants, and every state does. We've got about 78 species of invasive plants, and they're categorized by class A, B, and C, with A being the greatest potential for causing damage. And in fact, the law states, if you have a class A weed in your yard, you are required to remove it. I've heard that sometimes when we talk about native plants, we're not always Colorado-specific. We think of plants that might be native to the Midwest or to the East. Why does this happen? Why are plants that are native to other parts of the country prioritized over or confused with plants native to our environment? I think that's because so many Colorado folks here grew up in other areas of the country where there's significantly greater rainfall. Colorado has about 14 to 15 inches of rain per year. We are a high desert, but many people are enculturated with the English garden. But if you try and grow plants from that kind of an area, you're just causing yourself more work. You'll have to water, amend the soils, add fertilizers, which adds too many nitrates to our waterways. And then you get more weeds and then you have to add pesticides and herbicides. And those are toxic to the pollinators. What are some plants that are native to this area and anything that we should incorporate into our gardens this year? I think you'll recognize many of these names. Yarrow, sage, milkweed, harebells, the bluebells, sunflowers, gay feather, evening primrose, black-eyed Susan, goldenrod, columbines. They're all beautiful, drought-hardy, cold-tolerant, and they grow in poor, well-drained, sandy soils like we have here in Colorado. It's the Rockies with decomposed granite. Well, let's talk a little bit about pollinator plants. What are they and why are they so important? And are there any that are native to northern Colorado we should incorporate into our gardens? Many pollinators are host Specific. By that, I mean they visit only the plant species that they co-evolved with. A familiar example is the monarch butterfly that migrates thousands of miles and only gets food from and lays their eggs upon milkweeds. A recent study cited in the Smithsonian found that evening primrose is able to detect the specific sound frequencies of its bee pollinators. When it does, it produces fresh nectar in three minutes to attract them. That's very species-specific. Can you kind of summarize for us the benefits of native plants, not only to our individual gardens, but to our ecosystems at large? Well, other people may look at it from an economic standpoint, but I look at it from an ecological standpoint in that all of those organisms depend one upon the other and they create a food chain, continuous. And when we take a piece of Kentucky bluegrass lawn and instead put in native plants, then what we're doing is we're creating small contiguous patches of native plants and we're contributing to a sustaining corridor, creating landscapes for those pollinators. 
We're creating climate resilient areas. The insects are the foundation, of course, but by creating these landscapes, we're doing our bit for the earth. These patches cool the ground, they sequester carbon, they provide oxygen, all the good stuff we need to survive too. And it sounds like maybe that brings it back to the economic incentive that you touched on. The economic incentive here is conserving water and keeping down the invasives because those cost billions of dollars to control the invasives. And we don't want those. And we don't want the nitrate in the water system either. That's, you know, for Colorado, that's not a good thing. So you want a plant that grew up here because those genes are the genes that are going to make it successful right here. Denise Wilson with the Colorado Native Plant Society, which advocates for the preservation of native plants in our ecosystems. Denise, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. To learn more about native plants, including how to care for them or perhaps how to participate in the ongoing native plant sale, you can visit their website at conps.org. Wide open spaces are known to be strongholds for pollinators like butterflies. They often contain critical habitat and food resources far away from the disturbance of human civilization. But it turns out these areas are not immune to the threats from rising global temperatures and population growth. Researchers have confirmed an annual decline in butterfly populations across the West. Ivy Engel has more for KUNC. Wide open spaces like these are in much of Wyoming, and they're known to be strongholds for pollinators like butterflies. They often contain critical habitat and food resources far away from the disturbance of human civilization. But according to researcher Katie Prudick, it turns out even those areas are under threat. I think in the past we thought wildlands, you know, we could just set them aside away from humans and they would be fine because our, our impact is direct, right? Prudick is a researcher from the University of Arizona who studied the impacts global warming is having on butterfly numbers. She says butterflies and many other species are showing signs of being impacted indirectly by humans. When we think about these impacts of warming or drought or fire or these things that are related to climate change, then we need to be thinking about managing wildlands with intent and with a mind towards that they'll be affected in strange ways that are a little unpredictable, that aren't about direct human impact. Predict says the impact on butterflies is not good. So what we found is that on average, there's an almost 2% annual decline of butterfly population across the West. That's overall. But there is a bit of variation between species, with some doing better than others. But the researchers say it's clear that the declines were seen in areas with fall warming and drought. This was a surprise for us because most of the literature has really focused on spring changes in terms of timing. Spring has been the focus of the work because that's when, you know, everything emerges and then, you know, things have to be ready. The plants have to be available for the butterfly to lay eggs on and the caterpillars to eat and those sorts of things. She says this is important because fall is when butterflies are building fat reserves for winter hibernation. We think the plants are senescing or um, dying back sooner because they're under drought conditions. And we also think their quality is decreased by the droughts, the ones that aren't senescing, so that they're not providing great nutritious food for the caterpillars and the adult butterflies as they prepare for hibernation. Prudick says this pattern is applicable across the West, not just in the area she and her team studied. But University of Wyoming researchers say there isn't enough historical data on the state's butterfly population to determine that for sure. Lesha Tronstad is an invertebrate zoologist with the Wyoming Natural Diversity Database housed at UW. We don't have 
a lot of past data. Most of the information on butterflies is in the mountains because that's where people want to be when they collect butterflies. And so we don't have a lot of information for the rest of Wyoming. Tronstad and her graduate student Maddie Crawford have been trying to establish baseline data for the state's butterflies for the past few years. Crawford says the state's open spaces are special. Wyoming's rangelands are really good for butterflies. Unlike some other states, we do have rangelands instead of crops. So we have a bigger variety of flowers that these butterflies can choose from. So Wyoming may be a really good resource for these insects to use. But she says no matter how much we have, it's all threatened by increasing temperatures. In general, if our summers continue to get warmer and drier, some plants are going to have a hard time adjusting to that change quick enough to be able to produce a good enough amount of flowers for these insects to use. Tronstadt agrees and adds that if one struggles, they both do. Plants and pollinators are very closely tied, and one cannot survive without the other. So protecting butterflies means protecting the plants they're so tightly linked with, too. Researcher Katie Prudick suggests giving butterflies similar protections as some birds. I think sort of riffing off the Migratory Bird Act would be a great place to start. So we know that that's been really successful at increasing wetland bird population sizes. And so if we can start incorporating into those management plans, plants and sort of habitat associated with the butterflies that are locally there, that would probably go a long way. All three researchers agree that individuals can help protect butterflies by lowering their climate impact. Another good way is to join citizen science projects which help track these insects and learn more about your local native species. I'm Ivy Angle. That story came to us from Wyoming Public Radio. And that's our show for today. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.